The first thing that sort of gets me excited when I go into a Chinese scrapyard is just seeing all the stuff from the U.S. I was right. like, seeing old friends, you know? It's <laughs> like, there's oh, there's a box, box of blenders from Chicago. You know, I know that blender manufacturer. <laughs> Hey, it's Wilbert L. Cooper, and you're watching the Vice Podcast Show. I'm here with Adam Minter, the author of Junkyard Planet, a great new book that just came out today. Hey, Adam, thanks for coming in. It's really great. Yeah, man, when a lot of people talk about, you know, recycling and junk, they tend to think of it as like Sanford and Son or Oscar the Grouch or something, you know, yeah. dirty and yeah. kind of underground. Can you tell me a little bit, just to lay the groundwork, like how, how big is th this scrap, junk, industry and like what are the global implications? Of sure, sure. Well, I mean, I should say I love Sanford and Son as much as the yeah. next guy. <laughs> and Sanford and Son is just a small part of what has become a $500 billion wow. global industry. Okay. And some are estimating, Bank of America is estimating, it could be worth as much as a trillion dollars uh, come uh, uh, 2015. That's basically double the economy of Norway. Wow. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's not just Sanford and Son. Right. It's essential to everything we do, mm -hmm. everything we buy. You know, everything you own, if it isn't ha doesn't have something recycled in it, it's somehow touched by recycled content. So it's it's gigantic. That's cool. And how did you really get into this to start thinking about this? Because, like you say, a lot of people aren't aren't aware of how big it is. How yeah. did you how did you become aware? Well, I, my family, uh, dating back to the early 20th century, was in the business. My great grandfather came over from Russia, mm -hmm. wanted to work in vaudeville, and oh, wow. uh, that didn't work out. You know, mm -hmm. I guess it usually doesn't. And so he <laughs> he needed a job of some kind, mm -hmm. and so he started picking rags off the streets of Galveston, Texas. Okay, if you can believe that. Slowly, you know, go from having a burlap sack to having a horse to having a truck mm -hmm. to having some land, and he scrapped. Right, uh, and so I. Grew grew up around this business That's and cool. uh, you know from an early age I always thought you know I want to do a movie about the business mm -hmm. you know and then I thought oh, actually I think I'm gonna do a book about it but it was only three years ago where I thought I was at a stage where I could actually do it and mm -hmm. thus Junkyard Planet. That's really cool and so when you were growing up you were actually working in the scrapyard with your family it was like a family thing? Oh yeah it was a family family scrap business mm -hmm. it, it was a little bit Sanford and Son at yeah. times <laughs> believe me you know mm -hmm. my grandmother making hot dogs in the back office and serving them to customers that wow. kind of thing. Thing, you know, and, and yeah. so how did how does that sort of thing scale up to what we say is like a five hundred billion dollar industry? Are there corporations involved? Are you there bet. like can you can you break me break it down to where we can have something that's small, family operated, and something that is multinational? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you know, our business was a small scrapyard, but you know, if you go to the developing world, I work in okay. China. You know, I've traveled all over India, all over right. Asia. I mean, the smallest scrap businesses are one guy with the burlap sack. Mm -hmm. You know, and then it starts scaling up. Right. You know. Um, to get where we were with just a small little scrapyard in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. you still got that truck and you've got right. the, uh, you know, the horse uh, in between. Mm -hmm. Where it goes from the small family scrap business to something much bigger, it, it just requires a little bit of luck, like any business, mm -hmm. um, some capital and uh, you know, being in the right place at the right time. Um, and, and, they, and a business like that can explode. So you have both large private companies, especially on the coast, okay. and you also have publicly held companies. So most people don't realize this. You can actually trade scrap stock really? on, on the, yeah. So you have companies like Omnisource, which is owned by a company called Steel Dynamics, mm -hmm. multi-billion dollar steel company. They decided to buy a scrap company. Wow. You know, there's, mm -hmm. uh, there's others. So, you know, you can actually invest in this industry. That's cool. And so why would somebody, like, want to 
you know, build things with scrap as opposed to just getting new new metal? Sure, sure. Well, I, the simple answer is it's cheaper. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, if, if, if you decide you want to make a bunch of ballpoint pen balls, like mm-hmm. brass ballpoint pen balls, uh, do you want to go buy the brass down at the local scrapyard or do you want right. to go dig a new, you know, copper mine out mm-hmm. in, you know, in the Rocky Mountains? Well, that's an extreme example. But right. the fact of the matter is if you need raw materials quick, there's no quicker way to get them. It's cheaper and it's faster. Now, can you tell me about its implications in terms of the environment? Like, uh, is it is it better for us to say go mine for for copper? Or is it better for us to reuse copper and and what yeah, is that? Yeah, yeah. I, it's I, I mean, in my opinion, my feeling is first of all that the worst recycling is still better than the best mining. Gotcha. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'd still rather see somebody burning a pile of wire, you know, in North Dakota than mm-hmm. see somebody digging a copper mine in Tibet. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, both are going to be environmentally destructive, but that's not the choice. I mean, there's cleaner ways of recycling copper, and, right. and the great thing about recycling is, you know, uh, you can save fifty to eighty percent of the energy necessary to uh, to produce that same kilo or ton or whatever it will be of, uh, of, the, of the new material. It's always going to be more energy efficient, but it still has its costs. Mm-hmm. You know, you're still going to have pollution associated with it. Right. You know, you're still, uh, you uh, still going to you know, put people at risk. Anytime people are working around heavy equipment, there's still going to be people at risk. So it's not a perfect industry under mm-hmm. any circumstance. One of the things that really struck me about the book, and it's, it's fantastic, is uh, that the, like, nostalgia you have for the scrap and the metal and it's something you know you almost talk about it like someone someone might talk about going to a baseball game with their dad it's really cool like was there a moment in your youth when you realized like you know what I just I really love metal like that's that's what I'm into yeah you know it's funny there's sort of two stages that like I I you know I I loved walking through the warehouse the scrap warehouse with my dad as a kid and there wasn't one instance of it Mm -hmm. but I I liked doing that and you just look at oh here's some valves you know that doesn't sound interesting (laughs) You know, here's some stuff that dripped on the floor of a a factory. That was fun. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the other moment, you know, I I was just talking to my wife about this. I'd never told her the story, and I told it to her last night. My grandmother and I used to go garage sailing. You know, we loved garage sailing. Really? You know, and that's Mm -hmm. scrapping of a different kind. You're going out and looking at, you know, value at what other people don't want. Mm -hmm. We were at a garage sale once in Minneapolis, and uh, the guy was trying to sell her a clock, and he said it's white brass. Okay. Well, there's no such thing as white (laughs) brass. But he's looking at this little old lady Mm -hmm. saying, you know, I'm going to cheat her out of this. Well, my, my grandmother grew up in the business. Her right. dad was an immigrant. So she pulled out the magnet she kept in her purse and tossed it at the clock mm-hmm. and it immediately stuck to the clock and she said, that's steel. Right. You know, and I said, <laughs> you know, that's my grandma and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to do something with this industry. That's cool. Yeah. And so the scrap industry seems to have changed a lot. I, want, I know that the prices have gotten higher. Oh, yeah. What is one of the what are, what are some of the reasons why prices have increased and it's become? Is that part of the reason why it's more of a lucrative, bigger, bigger business now? Definitely. Okay. I mean, there, there's really one word that explains the rising prices, and that's China. Gotcha. China is everything. Mm-hmm. You know, as the as the developing world rises, but especially China, they want to buy the same stuff that we have here in the United States. Mm-hmm. There's middle class consumers, but they also want to supply stuff to us. Well, all of that requires raw materials. So we've, we've been talking about copper, so I'll continue with copper. Yeah. But, you know, right up until about 1990, copper was about a buck a pound. And it stayed that way for decades. Go up a couple cents one year, down a couple cents another year. You know, and that was just demand from the U.S. and Europe. All of a sudden, in the late 
late 80s, China comes on the market and it starts ticking up, up, up. And by 2007, it was up to four bucks a pound. Nothing like that had ever happened. Right. There was only one reason. It was China. And that made a lot of people very, very wealthy. Um, and you can do that with paper. You can do that with steel. You can do that with plastic. Name the raw material. China needs it because it's got a growing middle class and it's got a growing manufacturing base to export to us. That's one of the things I, I caught in the book, too, is it kind of talked about, like, they can't, they don't have some of those resources in, in China. Is that true? Like, what, what resources are they are they really looking for because they don't have them there? Well, they're, they're very strategic. I mean, you know, they, they don't have access to a lot of steel. They don't have much iron ore, so they really, you know, they really want to start upping their, uh, the steel that they bring in. But also metals like copper, aluminum, you know, also paper because they have limited forest resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, plastic requires a lot of oil, and, you know, they're now the number one car-consuming country in the world, so they'd much prefer to see that oil going into the gas tanks than into the plastics factories. Right. So, but they're also very strategic. Even though they have this stuff, they're saying, let's hold on to our resources here and let's import their junk and use that. Right. You know, when we really need our stuff, it'll be there. Mm-hmm. But for in the meantime, this is going to be a better, more efficient and profitable way for us to do it. And, uh, and at the same time, we're probably going to save, uh, you know, the environment a little bit in terms Definitely. of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So they're very, very savvy about it. You mentioned cars a little bit. I know in the book it kind of breaks down the, the different ways that people might have look, looked at cars from mm-hmm. back in the day in terms of scrapping or junking and then yeah. today. Can you kind of walk me through that? Like what, what, how would someone look at a car when they bring it into the yard back when you were a kid as opposed to today? Sure. Um, well, you know, a car would come in and, uh, and you would just look at a couple pieces on it, you know, as, as being worth any kind of money. You'd want to pull off the radiator, you know, because that's aluminum and copper, so that's got money. You know, you want the catalytic converter because that's got platinum in it. Right. You know, those could be worth, you know, 300 bucks, believe it or not. Most people don't wow. realize that. Mm-hmm. You know, you maybe look at the hubcaps and then you take the thing and you just crush it. <laughs> you know, and then and send it off for it to be shredded. Okay. Um, you know, these days um, there's going to be much more pulled off a car because the raw material prices have gone up. You know, people are going to actually take the trouble to pull some of the wiring out. You know, by hand uh, because the copper's worth so much money. Um, they'll look at some of the plastics. Like most people don't realize that the tail light plastic. That's very expensive and really? a very yeah, it's a very high grade plastic, and there's a big market both in China and the United States for that kind of material. So um, yeah, it, it, the people start taking things apart more because they have higher value. Is there um, are there new machinery and new technology that has built up just to sort of support this this growing industry? Sure, sure. I mean the the big transformation of the industry in terms of machinery took place started in the 1960s. Um, people uh, before the 1960s to to recycle a car was difficult. Right. I mean, you have to take it apart by hand. People, you hear accounts of people taking it apart by pickaxes, or they had in the late 1950s, you had these automobile crematoriums where you'd actually drive a car <laughs> underground and set it on fire really? so you could burn off all the seats, you know, the tires mm-hmm. and everything, and then you're left with the metal, you know, and you could pull it out real easy. Well, in the 60s, uh, some very smart scrappers down in Texas started developing shredders, giant shredders that could reduce a car, you know, to the size of your fist, mm-hmm. you know, and then you shred it, and then you can sort it out using magnets um, and uh, blowing air on it, so the really light stuff, like the seats that have been shredded, you just blow it right off. Mm-hmm. It was an incredible invention. Right. Yeah, was, then the next stage came in the 1970s where they actually developed technologies where you could separate the plastics from the metal, uh, the different metals, and uh, and that all exists right now. But the ironic thing is, as great as that technology is, it's still more profitable uh, to sort it by hand by exporting it to developing nations. Wow, and uh, also the shipping industry, right? Like, yeah. has has the shipping industry changed at all with with the uh, junk junk industry? Like, 
because we're doing so much overseas? Like how, how do those two things kind of grow? How do those two things grow together? Yeah, they're very closely related. The way I tell people to think about it is, you know, China ships a lot of stuff to the United States and the United States really doesn't have much to ship back to China. Okay. So there's a lot of competition in China for shipping containers. We all know what these look like, these 40 foot long right. boxes. So to ship a container from Shenzhen, China, that's the manufacturing heartland of China, to Los Angeles, costs right now about 2,400 bucks. Now, you got all those containers once they're emptied sitting in Los Angeles or Long Beach. The shipping company is like, we've got to get these back so we can right. ship more stuff back to the U.S. So what they do is they discount them. So right now, it costs about $300 to ship from Los Angeles to Shenzhen. Well, that's a great subsidy if you've got scrap metal that you want to send back uh, to China. But the more interesting thing is it's very expensive to ship in the United States. So to ship uh, that same container from Los Angeles to Chicago or to Cleveland uh. runs about 2500 bucks. Okay. Gotcha. So it's actually cheaper to send it to China. So that's the that's the incentive to send all the stuff, especially from the West Coast of the United States to Asia, to be recycled, not keep it here. So what? When you were a kid and you love you love scrap metal, what what made you want to leave leave the yard? Are you still in the yard? Like, what are you doing on a day to day? I know you're a writer and you're yeah. writing for the Atlantic well, and stuff I, like that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a family business, and you know, like it, like all family businesses, there's conflicts in family businesses. Right, right. Who's going to be the boss? And I learned, you know, in my I started learning in my early twenties. I'm really not a businessman. Mm-hmm. I'm a I'm meant to do other things, you right. know, and most of my family members would tell you the same thing. <laughs> so I actually ended up deciding to go into journalism, and I ended up going to China um, on some freelance assignments, working for trade magazines, and so I don't have actually anything to do with the family business anymore, and the family business actually, uh, the original location of it um, was sold to the city of Minneapolis, so now it's just a small warehouse, that's, um, it's a small business, not what it was uh, when I grew up in it. What was so interesting too is, you know, reading some of your stuff. When you talk about walking through the scrap yards and the scrap facilities in other countries, you get excited too. Can you tell me how an operation in China is similar or different to what what's going on in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean they're very different. Um, okay. You know, and the first thing that sort of gets me excited when I go into a Chinese scrapyard is just seeing all the stuff from the U.S. I was right. like seeing old friends. You know, it's <laughs> like there's oh there's a box box of blenders from Chicago. You know, I know that blender manufacturer. <laughs> you know, um, but there's there's so little in common. Um, in in the U.S., the the industry and the labor means uh, that that machines are usually used for recycling. Right. China, it's it's hands, and so you walk into these warehouses um, sometimes that are just massive warehouses. You'll have two, three hundred, usually women working on sorting metals, breaking motors. I mean, it's just epic. You you, you can't three D film wouldn't do justice to really? what what these are. Um, and How many people would you say are working in like an average one? Well, those are those are very big ones. Um, but you know, I've seen uh, I've seen you know smaller ones. You can find a lot of family workshops too. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I like to do when I'm traveling in small town China, I can always find the local scrapyard you know yeah. and it's you know and it's it's like it's somebody's house you know it's something on the main street and it's just packed with stuff and that can be you know dad mom and two kids you know who are just do who are doing the business and they're probably you know you look at their house and you see out front you know they got all this scrap and you're thinking oh man these people are poor off but you know, right. probably they're the best people off in town you yeah. know they're the richest folks in town um it's you know it's every one of these is different it's so hard to say that they're like this or like that right i mean the only difference with the u.s and china you can really generalize is like a lot of machinery in the u.s very little in china and and the scale of the chinese facilities when you get into the really big ones, it's just, it's monumental. 
you, there are there are some similarities similarities you draw in the book to how uh, the modern day scrapyards are in China and and how they were in the U.S. back in the day mm. in terms of environmental regulations oh, and stuff yeah. like that. Can you can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, we tend to in the United States think of ourselves as quite environmentally advanced. Right. And we tend to forget, you know, some of our origins. So, you know, one of the things that people complained about when they started reporting on Chinese scrapyards in the '90s, especially, was all the burning wire. You know, you'd drive into these towns and you'd see these black clouds of smoke over the town. And what it was was people setting fire to giant piles of wire to get the insulation off so you had the copper. This is nothing we didn't do in the United States. Um, you know, my relatives, my family did this kind of thing as well. I'm not embarrassed to say it. It right. was just, it was just perfectly it was. acceptable. Yeah. You know, you didn't think of it in, in those terms, you know, and, and we grew out of it in the 70s. You know, we stopped doing it. There's still people who burn wire a little Definitely. bit in the U.S., but not as much as, as there was. Well, China's starting to grow out of it as well. But the industry came from those same kinds of origins, and there's all kinds of, you know, unfriendly environmental practices like that which took place does that is it kind of a, a, a game where the the places that that kind of stuff happens just moves to a different place so like will we see you know the burning of and the negative environmental things happening in like Sudan or some some right. other some other place that where the regulations are much much lower and people you know are more willing to go through that to make money. Right, right. That's a great question. Well, you know, China has tried shutting down some of these towns where you have really bad uh, experiences. So I write about one in the book called Wenan, which okay. is a plastics recycling zone in northern China. It's a county, huge county, about 450 square miles. Probably the worst environmental disaster I'd ever seen. Um, the government uh, a couple years ago said that's it. We're shutting it down. Um, what happened then? They just scattered to all other parts of northern China. So it actually made the situation much worse. The best oh. thing would have been the best thing would have been let it be and you know encourage the industry and subsidize the upgrade. Instead, they've spread it all over the place. In terms of you know uh, the scrap industry moving to Africa and other countries, I get people asking me about Africa quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and for now, it won't. And that is because Africa doesn't manufacture that much. You know, that's the other side of it. Yeah, because the only reason you recycle something is so you can make it into something new. Well, right now, Africa isn't making that much stuff. China's still the king, you know. Um, but over time, as Africa starts to go through this renaissance that it seems to be starting right now, I think you will see some things flowing in there, and uh, I think you will see that happen. Um, you know, uh, but this idea that everything will leave China, so long as China is the world's biggest manufacturer or second biggest manufacturer, it's going to be the world's biggest recycler. Those two things go very closely together. Right. As, as um, you know, from an American standpoint, what does that say about our, like, preeminence in terms of uh, global economics? Does it say, like, should we care that, that there's all, a lot of this stuff is going to China. Like, how should we, what should we look at it? You yeah, know? I mean, it's not a new story, actually. Right. I mean, the U.S. Um, right now exports about 40% of all the recyclable materials that it generates. Um, and that's, that's a lot, but 60% of it stays here, right. you know, and feeds factories here. But the U.S. has been exporting scrap to other countries since the early 20th century. Right. You know, it's always been a global business where there's, you know, demand for raw materials that'll go. But I think your point is a good one because, you know, uh, I mentioned this in the book. In the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, the U.S. started importing steel from the U.K. and then started importing rags from the U.K. And of course, the U.K. at that point was right at the peak of its power. Right. You know, it was rich and it was throwing away a lot of stuff. And as in the U.S., which was on the rise at that point, saying, 
send it, it on over, bring it on over here. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's something, you know, I think that's something to think about, you know. Um, and one of the, you know, I say about recycling, it's a story about recycling, but it's also a story about manufacturing. Right. And right now the U.S. doesn't have enough manufacturing to handle all that stuff, so it's got to go somewhere else. Well, one of the things that was so cool about your, your book was you talk a lot about the iPhone. Yeah. And can you, you know, kind of break it down for me? Um, just even some more, like, what are the steps that, you know, t- how does the iPhone relate to s- the scrap industry? And, like, what are the steps that it takes to get one of these? Right, right. Well, you know, the thing with the iPhone and the thing with all smartphones is they're very complex products. So it means that the more complex a product is, the more difficult it is to recycle, period. You know, there's more parts to take apart. Um, and one of the things about the iPhone that I find very intriguing is that Apple very much promotes itself as a company that's green. Right. And they all, they, you know, they've been advertising since the 5S and the 5C came out. Send your phone to us for recycling. For sure. And you know, I go into that a little bit in the book. What does that mean? How does Apple recycle its phones? Well, the way Apple recycles the phones, if they're not going to sell them for reuse, is they shred them. Okay. So literally, they put them in a shredder and you. Know, break it down into tiny, tiny pieces, and then they'll use some technologies to sort it out. Um, But a lot of that phone, once it's shredded, is not reusable, obviously, and it can't be recycled. You know, I've got one, too, here. Uh, Where's mine? (laughs) You know, I've got a 4S. That looks like a 5. I mean, the glass... Can't, can't be recycled, mm-hmm. you know. Once you've shredded, uh, once you've shredded this thing, some of these circuits in the battery, which could be perfectly reusable, can't be reused anymore. Um, some of these plastics, there's simply nowhere in the United States to recycle them. Okay. Meanwhile, Apple makes it very hard to upgrade the phone. You can't switch out your battery right. in an iPhone, so uh, you know uh, you have to pay them eighty bucks, ninety bucks to do it. So that's a disincentive for people to keep their phone. It's an incentive to send it to Apple to let them shred it. Right. You know. So I argue in the book that this is kind of a, a not a very green product, um, despite the fact that it's depicted as such. So what are the more ethical or better ways to have like these kind of commercial uh, products? Is it is it something that you know you can switch you can switch things out and you can upgrade easily without having to send yeah. it back? Yeah, I mean, there's a really cool movement now I'm really into called DFR, Design for Recycling. Okay. You know, where, where, and Design for Recycling is also Design for Reuse, you know? Right. Let's make products that, you know, you don't have to throw away, that they're easy to upgrade. Maybe they're modular. You can pop a new module in. Um, we're all going to upgrade. I mean, right. I, you know, I've got a 4S here. I'm planning on getting a 5, you for know? Sure. You know, I want it, yeah, you know? Definitely. but definitely. But is there a a more environmentally friendly way to do this? We're all going to consume. But is there a way we could do this so that the products last longer, that we're not putting much stress on raw materials? The other way to do that, of course, um, is to recycle these in a different way. So if you send these products oftentimes to China uh, in particular, if people don't want it, like a first-generation iPhone, nobody wants a first-generation right. iPhone anymore. Yeah, you know, not even in India where they reuse a lot of products. So they'll take apart that first-generation iPhone, and they will pull out the reusable bits, you know, and they'll take out, like, the chips, and they'll sell them in the chip markets, you know, and those chips will find their way into toys or into scrolling right. signs and all this stuff. Well, you know, the big electronics manufacturers hate that. Oh, really? Yeah. They, what, yeah why, do, why do they hate it? Well, because it's taken away their business, you know? You know, it's a competition for them. You know, Apple's not competing against, you know, the guy who takes a Motorola chip and runs a sign that says what the daily specials are, blue plate specials are. But they still don't want to see their products in an aftermarket. You know, it's competition. Samsung, which makes chips... They really hate it, mm-hmm. you know. They don't, and, and a lot of people counterfeit these things. So they'll pull them out and they'll say they're new, you know, and yeah. sell them. But on the other hand, if you stop and think about it, 
it's, you know, they're counterfeiting, but it is counterfeiting that's kind of good for the environment. Definitely. These are the hard choices. This is where it's all a very gray area. Right. You know, it's not really black and white or, you know, green and white, if you will. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and that's how we tend to think of things in the U.S. We want it to be very yes or no, but the truth is most of the truth lies in the middle area there. And, and these are very hard choices that we all have to make as consumers. What are some of the other issues that you've seen that sort of exist in that gray area in scrapping? Are there any other, other things that kind of um, make you realize, well, I w walked into it thinking this thing, mm -hmm. but then I look at it and I see something a little bit different or something that makes me question my initial initial ideas. I had a moment in India about seven years ago that really changed me and I went through a market in Mumbai. Um, it was a scrap market, it's an amazing place. And you walk through and people are recycling all kinds of different things there. And I came across people with these giant plastic bags which looked like trash was in it. Didn't look like scrap, like I said, really looked like trash. And I got closer and what it was, was a blister packs. Do you know what a blister pack no, is? No, what's a blister pack? A blister pack is when you get like, a, you buy a, you know, like some Tylenol and it comes in a pack that you pop out. The, okay. So you know, you have the plastic capsule and then it pops through the foil, mm -hmm. okay? And these were giant black bags of blister packs. And what people were doing was peeling the foil off the back of that plastic. And, and that for me was this really transformative moment uh, because I suddenly realized, we're not really thinking very hard about how to build these things to be recycled. You know, that's a horrible product from an right. environmental sustainability side. I don't care what those medicines were for. Surely there's a better, more environmentally sound way to package that stuff. Now, in India, the labor's so cheap and conditions can be so bad that people will actually... Yeah, they'll employ themselves they'll by peeling that foil off. Yeah. Um, but that for me, I don't know if that's a gray area, but it was very much a transformative moment where I really started thinking that the manufacturers have to start taking more responsibility for the design of their products from a green standpoint. And it's not just using green components. Like Apple likes to brag about how they don't have toxins in a lot of their right. products. That's fine. But to me, the higher level issue is how do you make this so it can be disposed of easier, upgraded easier, recycled easy? That to me is, it's a, it is a bit of a gray area because it's hard, but it, it's, it's the pressing issue. Is it like, wh what responsibility do you think consumers have when they're buying products to think about this stuff? Like, should we, as people who are out there shopping for Christmas stuff, like how prescient do we ha need to have these in our minds to change the behavior of yeah. other people who are making stuff? Yeah, I mean, uh, somebody just said this to me the other day, buy cheap, buy twice. Okay. You know, you know, <laughs> which is which is true. You know, you buy something cheap and it breaks quickly, and right. then you're gonna go buy again. I, you know, I think that as consumers, I, I, look, I'm an American. I'm a consumer. For sure. You me, know, me you, too. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. you can't tell people up oh, reduce your consumption. Yeah. That's it. You know, but you can tell people to buy better. Buy things that are gonna last. You know, buy things that aren't immediately disposable. There's lots of areas where we can't. We all buy bottled water. We're gonna continue buying bottled water. But you know, buying higher quality products is, is really great. Somebody gave me an example of this just the other day. Is the power strip po surge suppressor? Okay. You know, there's two kinds of surge suppressors. One that has a fuse in it that when the surge comes through, it just blows out. Surge suppressor dead. And one which has a switch that just lifts up and you can reset the surge suppressor, oh. okay? The one that has a switch, you can reset it. You know, it's more expensive, but that's the kind of example we're talking right. about. And, and I think as consumers, those are the things we can ask manufacturers to do. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to come off as a total Apple critic, right. but 
I can't switch out the battery in this thing, and I can't add memory to it. If I could, I might keep it longer. Definitely. You know, I mean, if I can add memory to this, I maybe can put in, you know, iOS 8, iOS 9. But right now with a 4S, I mean, 7's running slow, mm -hmm. you know. These are the sorts of things that I think we can start asking for as consumers. I, I'm an American. I know we can't ask too much from people, but you can ask those simple steps, and then let's see where it goes. Definitely. Um, one of the things that was interesting to me kind of was just thinking about how important metal is mm. to the world. Mm. And it was a little bit like, like I guess, I don't know, it was kind of silly. But I was like, oh, we still need metal that much. I don't know why, but like you feel like you're living in the future. You hear stories about guys. Like, I don't know if you heard about the story we run on Vice.com about a guy who uh, survives on Soylent. It's like a new fluid he's created that he just, he drinks and it provides him sustenance. He doesn't have to eat food. And just like weird things that people are doing to kind of get beyond the confines of, of the past. Right. And your metal has been something that we've used forever, you right. know? And so it's so interesting to me to think that we're still very, very connected to all different kinds of precious metal. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we keep talking about the iPhone, but, you know, there's a lot of metal in here and a lot of precious metal that's becoming more and more expensive because we need more and more of it. Uh, the palladium, the platinum, these are very rare elements. Uh, I'm sure you might have heard the phrase rare earth metal. No, no. Yeah, that's, that's a very uh, important... China has something like 90% of the world's rare earth metal okay. reserves. Um, and they go into things, just a few grains may go into the screen, but that makes it capable of doing the touch screen. You know, all of these things exist and they're very very difficult to uh to recycle so i mean it comes back to the recycling issue if, if we can't recycle this stuff we're going to price ourselves out of being able to use some of this mm -hmm. stuff yeah we're absolutely dependent upon it where do you think uh a lot of the scrap industry and the junkyard industry is going what are some of the new movements or new new things that are really exciting to you that see us taking it into the future. I think it's what I was talking about really is uh, this idea of designing for recycling. Um, and you're starting to see it a little bit in China where you have actual um, OEMs and ODMs. These are the companies like Foxconn that actually make, uh, make stuff. They want to start recycling the stuff too. So they want to start taking it back because, uh, one, they see it as a business opportunity, but, two, raw materials are getting more expensive. You know, I'm sure Apple would love to get this back and be able to take some of these parts and so then they don't have to go on the open market and buy you know, whatever it is, the glass, whatever, uh, to make a new iPhone. So that's at the very early stages of happening. There's a company called Wistron, okay. which is based in Taiwan, um, where they've set up plastic recycling in their plant in, uh, uh, in uh, Kunshan, which is north of Shanghai. Now, they manufacture for BlackBerry, uh, Lenovo, and uh, I'm forgetting it's Acer. Um, and they're now taking back uh, the plastics from uh, computer monitors, which they're recycling and turning into plastics for new, new uh, electronics. Right. That to me is very cool. And really I, think, cool. I think it's the future. We'll see if it works as a business. We don't know yet. You know, it, mm -hmm. it might not, um, but they're the real pioneers in this, so it'll be interesting to see how it goes. There's, I think a lot of times uh, we think about the relationship between, you know, the junk and scrap and China. What are some of the other scrapyards around the world like? Like, are they, is it very different in, in say, the UK, or is right. what is it like in, in Mexico? Like, do you have any familiarity with some yeah. of those other, yeah. other places? I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm most familiar with the US uh, and China, but I've traveled throughout Asia, and, and the funny thing about this business is it's pretty much the same everywhere. It just becomes <laughs> scale. Right. You know, there's a way to do it, you know? And, uh, you know, if you can afford a little bit of equipment, you get that, and then you do it like the other guys who have a little bit of equipment. But there's not that much difference. You know, it's it. What the only difference is, you know, the talent and the people who run the businesses. There's people who have a talent for seeing value where other people don't. 
and they're the ones who, uh, who tend to be the most successful. But it doesn't change that much. Um, the environmental conditions in certain places will be different. India, uh, in my experience, is probably the worst environmental conditions I've seen. But really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what are some of these, and we, we talked about the burning, but what are some of the other environmental, uh, environmental questions or sure. conditions that we have? Sure. Well, I mean, plastics recycling can be a really ugly thing um, because to recycle plastics, there's ways of doing it. But if you use uh, sort of the small-scale family-style workshop, You'll shred the plastics into small pieces, then you need to wash them, okay? And you'll okay. use a caustic cleaning agent. Those caustic cleaning agents in small towns, there's nowhere to dispose of that stuff properly. So what do you do with it? You toss it in the creek, you toss it on the ground. So that's a, that's a, that's a terrible consequence. Then when you actually start the process of melting the plastics into new plastics, um, it emits fumes. Uh, if you're in a small, enclosed workspace, you're breathing those fumes. Those fumes can literally plasticize your lungs over time. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, so that's, that's pretty awful. Um, you know, sorting operations, you see in the book we have pictures of, you know, people doing this hand sorting. Yeah. Um, some places they'll give them face masks to protect from the dust, which is all you really need. Some places they won't, you know. These are, you know, it sounds like a small thing, but inhaling dust can be extremely destructive to your lungs over time. So there's, there's all kinds of issues. In the paper recycling industry, China's paper recycling industry was notoriously dirty and was responsible in large part for killing off much of the Yellow River, oh, wow. which I'm sure you've heard of yeah. uh, in the 1990s. It's come back a little bit. They've done a pretty good job of, of shutting down or at least regulating some of these plants. So it can be, it can be bad. Uh, in, you know, and we had those kinds of problems in the U.S. too. I mean, it's fair to mention that there's not much they did there we we didn't do first um, and uh, but we improved and steadily at least in China they're improving I don't see as much improvement in India one of the things that was it was actually in the introduction that I found was really interesting and I guess it's kind of hard to even see the scope of this is you talk about how it's hard to get clean data on the junkyard industry and the scrap industry what are the challenges uh, for someone who's so interested in this and it's such a big industry to figure out how big it is, like we might probably be underestimating even how the scope mm -hmm. of it, right? Definitely, definitely. In fact, there's a real incentive for a lot of companies to downplay how much they're bringing in. Um, you know, uh, I talk about this later in the book, the import-export trade. People cheat on uh, the numbers that they, uh, on what they're exporting, the weights. They will tell different stories for all kinds of different reasons, usually tax savings. So because of all this tax cheating on the import-export trade, you, you have no idea what's being shipped. I've had the experience of being at conferences with Chinese government officials and, you know, officials from different agencies will cut, get up and give different numbers on what the weights and volumes are for a, for a specific commodity being shipped into China. So it's a big challenge. And sometimes all you can do is talk about parameters, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about the process of Christmas lights going uh, overseas? That was really fascinating. In the sure, yeah. sure. Well, I, the, the whole Christmas tree light story for me started just visiting a scrapyard in China. I saw a pile of you know, Christmas tree lights that probably weighed a ton sitting in this recycling yard. And it became a quest of mine to figure out what on earth are people doing with this stuff. So I went around uh, the United States trying to find people who exported it, found a guy who said, I'll hook you up in this town called Shijiao with my buddy who owned the scrapyard there. <laughs> It's like, great. So, you know, I went down to Shijiao, and, uh, and uh, Raymond Lee is his name, and he took me to his plant uh, where they recycle about 2 million pounds of American Christmas tree lights wow. per year. And they're just one factory out of, he told me, 10 in that town that do a similar volume. Wow. So that's, that's 20 million pounds of American Christmas tree lights 
hit in this one small town in China every year. Shame on Americans for right. tossing <laughs> out. I mean, come on, people. You know, but we all know these Christmas tree lights are really cheap and they're manufactured in China. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so how do they do it? How do you recycle a Christmas tree light? Right. Well, the issue is, you know, what is a Christmas tree light? It's glass, it's insulation, and it's copper. So the way you do it is you first put it in a shredder, chop it up into this mulch, pour water on it so it's this goop of metal, rubber, and glass. Mm -hmm. And then you put it on a giant table that basically shakes with water going across it. Now, wow. if you looked at that table, you go, what on earth is going on right. here? Yeah, so, <laughs> so this is how I explain it. Think of a stream bed with a really fast current going on mm -hmm. it, and it's got stones on the stream bed, okay? The pebbles are going to flow really fast with the, with the current, and the boulders are going to stay in one place. Well, the insulation and glass weigh very little. Uh, you know, but the copper weighs a lot. Okay. So the water just washes away basically the insulation and the glass, um, and the copper stays in place, and it, it divides out really nicely. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's not so easy. I mean, uh, at Raymond's factory, he told me uh, it took about a year to get it tuned up, so it just worked right. Mm -hmm. You know, and Christmas tree lights, I guess, standard across the industry are 28% copper. I, I don't know. You That's know, crazy. but it's like, so they tuned it so it could do that. It was amazing. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to the question I had asked you earlier, but it's so fascinating to me to think about all the in new industries that are built up around trying to figure out ways to extract yeah. extract copper, extract steel from, from these different items. Is there like a leader, leading company that's, that's doing that? Or are there like some people you can point to that are like, those guys are really thinking innovatively? Because I mean, right. in a lot of ways, that's like a service right. to all of us, right? Yeah, I mean, there is innovation in the industry. I mean, there's one company, and I write about them towards the end of the book, uh, called Huron Valley Steel. It's an amazing company in, in Michigan that nobody has ever heard of. They're very private. <laughs> they like a low profile, very nice people, but they've actually developed technologies that can take a mixture of metals and, I mean, separate out the whole thing as clean as possible. And I tell the story in the book of being in their plant. Their specialty is actually sorting out shredded American auto automobiles into its various components. And I went through one of their plants. I was walking through it one day and I saw, as, as we went through it, literally coins falling off a conveyor, being shot out of a conveyor. Wow. And you look into this box the size of this table and it's just filled with American coins. I said, what's going on here? And they said, well, you know, when people sh drop off their cars at the junkyard, they got change in the seats and that stuff's got to be recovered. Uh, mm -hmm. They told me the average American car <laughs> is shredded, recycled with a buck 65 and change in wow. it. You know, so they devised a way mechanically mechanically um, to get that change out, and then they sell it back to the U.S. Treasury. They're literally making money, you know? <laughs> it's the most amazing thing you've seen, and I can't tell you how they do it. I, I had the you know, great... Oh, like yeah. secret? Yeah, there's a trade secret, secret there. <laughs> but, they, but I can tell you I saw it literally raining money out of wow. this, off these conveyors. It's absolutely incredible. So they're a technology leader for sure. Um, there's other companies that have developed uh, really interesting ways of doing things, um, uh, but they're, they're, you know, there's, they're not big names. Mm -hmm. It's more of a, a steady evolution right now. Right. I, I was really interested, like, you know, we've talked a little bit about this idea of people handpicking through through scrap in other countries. Was there ever a time when people were doing that here? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, uh, forget the scrap. I mean, we had uh, people doing what you see, you know, these, like in Slumdog Billionaire, you have people picking through trash at dumps looking for recyclables. Mm -hmm. We had people doing that here. 
You know, and one of the guys I write about in the book, Leonard Fritz, who founded Huron Valley Steel Company, uh, he started out doing that, you know, eight, nine years old. Right. So is that like what kind of what you were talking about in the book with like grubbing? Is yeah. That, okay. That's grubbing. So he referred to it as a term I'd never heard before. Until right. I, I saw it. I was like, oh, Leonard. that's dope. Yeah, yeah. It's a great <laughs> a cool term, term, isn't it? It's cool. So, uh, yeah. So he, he said, yeah, we went grubbing. When he first said it to me, I was like, what? Right. You know? <laughs> and then I was like, I got it. Okay. Yep. So, you know, he, you know, these kids in India are grubbing in the dumps. It's hard work. Leonard told the story. I mean, he's he's out there grubbing in the Detroit municipal right. dumps in the 1920s with hobos who couldn't care if he's 9 or 90, mm-hmm. you know. Um, that's something that's real, you know, and we did that. Yeah. Are there any other, like, cool cool terms or any, like, colloquial things that are sort of inside the, the scrap yeah. industry that people don't know? Can yeah. you, you break me off some cool some cool scrap, scrap lingo? Or? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the whole thing, there is this sort of secret language of okay. scrap. It's called the, the ISRI specs. So all of the different commodities, like for you, you'd look at a, a pile of radiators and, you know, and, and say right. radiators. You look at a pile of shredded scrap and say maybe garbage or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in the industry, you call that shredded scrap Zorba. You know, oh, and if okay. it's got circuit <laughs> boards in it, you call it Zurich. Gotcha. You know, mm-hmm. and it, you know, it, it's, I mean, uh, you know, there's, uh, you look at a bunch of brass scrap, like plumbing scrap, mm-hmm. you know, that's honey. You know, really? These, honey? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and these terms. I mean, and there's there's literally hundreds of these terms. Oh, they're just crazy. You can download them from the the website for the trade organization, <laughs> and they've been in use since the 20s. They did it because they wanted the reason they wanted these. I'd always wondered. And then finally looked in, and they said, "Well, the reason they developed these was." In the old days of the scrap business, um, you were still trading between cities, and you needed to tell people what you're sending them or what you wanted to buy, mm-hmm. and you tell them via telegram. So you wanted as short a manner as possible. Right. So you just come up with these, you know, five and six letter terms, you know, like honey, yeah. you know, to cover <laughs> it. You know, I mean, it's it's really funny. That's stuff. really cool. Yeah. I I loved like towards the end of the book, you you talk about um, Johnson. Zang yeah. and his role. Can you? I think it was really fascinating. I mean, can you break it down just for for our vice readers? Sure. Like, uh, you know what his role is and what people like him do. Yeah. So Johnson Zeng is a traveling scrap buyer, and he's about one of one hundred on the road at any given time in the U.S. And he's on the road right now, actually, because mm-hmm. I had an email from him last night. And what he does is he goes around to scrapyards all over the United States and literally buys their scrap and then exports it back to China. And this is not some small-scale traveling salesman. Right. I traveled with him for a week, and when he picked me up in St. Louis, you know, we're just talking, chatting in the car, and I said, Johnson, so what we spent? What 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 are you looking to spend this? week mm-hmm. and he said oh about a million bucks in wow. scrap metal that was sent back uh, to <laughs> China. Spree, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and he was disappointed because he couldn't pull it off. Mm-hmm. You know, he there was because he got to cut a deal and he couldn't cut every deal he wanted. You right. know, um, but that's big money. That's but big he money. plays a critical role in guys like him in getting the stuff from the United States to China. And it's the stuff that his Chinese buyers want. They trust him. He speaks English. He's a Chinese guy. He's a very interesting story in his own right. So they trust him. Yeah, he's their eyes and ears, and he'll go in. And if he doesn't know what it is. Takes out his BlackBerry, snaps a photo of it, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, within five minutes, he's got a note back from some guy in you know rural Guangdong province saying right. two twenty-five a pound. You know, and and he then arranges the shipping back. Very cool. And so when you are when you own a company and you want to manufacture something, yeah. right? Like say you're a Chinese company and you want to man- manufacture something. Do you do you call up? That guy, Zhang and get and how did how does it right. how does it go from 
being sent to China and then being turned back into something usable sure, in, in quality. Sure. Well, the people who are buying from him are scrap recyclers. So they're okay. the ones who are gonna, they're gonna do one of two things. They're gonna actually, you know, the stuff that Johnson sends back is stuff like copper wire or, you know, Christmas tree lights, he'll send right. back. You know, I was with him, I saw him buy Christmas tree lights, you it's know. Crazy. And they're the ones who will recycle that into the, the insulation and, and the copper. And then they'll sell it to the manufacturer, mm -hmm. you know. So those are the guys he's selling to. So the manufacturers then call the scrap companies and say, we need two ton of X, mm -hmm. you know, please send it over. Um, sometimes those scrap companies are small family-owned operations. Sometimes they're, they are very, very big. Um, you know, the company in the town where Johnson sends a lot of his stuff, Qingyun Jintian, turns over hundreds of millions of dollars a year. They're a scrap copper buyer, you know, and they'll sell it then to the factories. They actually melt it down themselves and then sell the bricks, the ingot, copper okay. ingot to the factory. So it's, it's, but it's a very sensitive business. These guys in China who place orders with Johnson, you know, they're having lunch and a big part of their daily job is just having lunch and dinner, finding out what people need, where the economy is going so they can make smart, tell, give Johnson good instruction. Because right. it's a dangerous thing Johnson does because they pay cash for it. And then it takes, uh, and it takes six weeks, five, six weeks to get from China to, or from the United States to China. Well, the price of copper in that time can tank, you okay. know, you could lose a lot of money as Definitely. well. Yeah. So you dedicated this book to your uh, grandmother. Yeah. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about her? Because I was so interested in some of the anecdotes and yeah. things you had about her. Yeah. Well, my grandmother, Betty Zeman, uh, I say she scrapped, and she did. And she grew up in the business, um, daughter of an immigrant scrap dealer. And we were very close. I mean, I, I was all raised by her. And mm -hmm. I used to work beside her, you know, in the, in the scrapyard. And she taught me how to buy, you know, a lot of scraps sitting at the scale there and what to look for, out for. We would sit at the cameras and watch watch the employees, and we always got a kick when the employees would try and sneak something off in the corner <laughs> that came in, you know, she'd say, see, watch them, watch them, and then, you know, she'd send me out there to go retrieve it, right, and I, right. I'd watch the employees giving me, you know, the look of death as I, <laughs> you know, take, take, their, they take their, you know, their great prize, right. you know, and then we would garage sale as well, it was the same kind of concept, mm -hmm. you know, it was a very special relationship, uh, she meant the world to me. That's really, really cool, and it seems like, are there a lot of women in, in, in the scrap, in, yes and, and in the, the yes junkyard no. game? Yes and no. No, I mean the old style American scrap bears, the Jewish American scrap bears, because there's about 90% Jewish at one really? point. Oh, yeah, very much so. European Jews, they couldn't get other jobs, gotcha. you know? So um, you would always have, you know, it would always be the guy who's the front, you know? Yeah. But, but you always had the grandmother or the wife, you know, basically running the office behind, you know? And that's a key role. That's just as important as, as, as the front office job, you know? But it, it still remained a very male-centric business, and it is still in the United States. It's a trading business. I mean, if you go to the floor of the, you know, the New York Stock Exchange or, you know, the Commodities Exchange, it's going to be mostly men out there Definitely. trading. For whatever reason, it attracts men. In China, interestingly, um, you see more and more women as traders and more and more women at a managerial level. And you definitely see more women working in the scrapyard doing the metal sorting. It's politically incorrect, but I've always asked guys, why are you only yeah, hiring women that? to sort the metal? And their response is universally the same. Women are more precise. You know, um, and, you know, a lot of women I know would agree with that <laughs> assessment, you know. Um, and so that's why they hire them to yeah. do that kind of work. That's the explanation given to me. And um, whether that's true or not, it, it's very much the rationalization they use. That's really, really cool. And you're married. Yes. Have you, have you taken, you have any kids? 
Uh, no kids. Okay. Yet. No kids yet. Do you, do you take your wife with you um, in the scrapyard? Yeah, 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 yeah. Is she get yeah. a kick out of it as well? Yeah, yeah. We were dating. I took her to a metal shredder. You know, <laughs> <laughs> she loved it. You know, that's cool. The perfect girl for you. <laughs> perfect girl. It's like if you could like this, we're we're gonna work out yep. just fine. You know. But yeah, she likes traveling with me, and you know, we were actually married during a scrap convention. Oh wow. Yeah, in Las Vegas. So you're really planned. serious about yeah. the scrap game? Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of reasons for that, but it worked out great. I said we could do it during this convention, and she said, "All right, let's do it." That's excellent. Well, yeah. this book is incredible. I love a lot of the personal anecdotes and all of the things you have to say from your, your personal perspective, um, you know, being a part of a family that, that was part of the scrap industry. But it's also, I think it's a really important read for the global perspective that you provide. And so thank you so much for just laying down some really important knowledge I think everybody can get a lot from. And hopefully people can take some stuff away from this to, you know, learn about recycling and making this, this world a little bit, a little bit better. Well, thank, thank you, you so very much. much. I appreciate it.